0: Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge. It's a portion of Psalm 137, and that's the way we're going to begin today, Saturday, March the 27th, 2021. So let's get started, and we're moving into a new place. We're the day before uh, Palm Sunday now, and we're going to begin looking at the reversal, the great reversal in Jeremiah, the reversal of judgment against the people to the promise of deliverance and the promise of a new covenant in fact. And so this is going to herald the future. And it's not just for uh, Judah. It's also including Israel. So God's talking about the reunification of his peoples under one banner and one new covenant. And so it's ultimately, as we know, it's going to be even greater than that. It's going to be the reunification of all people who have been created in his image. And so in 31, uh, Jeremiah 31, 27 to 34, he says, the days are coming when I'll sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And so he's going to fill the land again with all these things. And then, uh, as it, uh, as I've watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And in those days they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. There's this new way of doing the covenant. It's not like we lose sight of collective responsibility, but but your sins don't drag me down. One of the interesting and humorous, I guess, things that you can know about um, Jewish eschatology, which is what happens at the end of time, is this, that... In the At the final judgment, after you die, actually, you pass into the Garden of Eden for a period of time until the final uh, trumpet sounds. And so as you pass into the Garden of Eden, however, you've got to pass through a cave. And that cave is where Adam is. And so as the, they see it as, as you pass through there, you come in touch. Hutting shaking your head, kind of blaming Adam, and he gets his revenge because you've done this forever. And, and he looks up and says, no, 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 no. I'm here for my sins. You are here for yours. And, and, and not, it's an interesting kind of a way of looking at things, but it's also a reminder of this personal responsibility in this new covenant that's made with, uh, with the people, and that is that everyone is individually responsible for their transgressions. And so it, it's it's a wonderful thing in a lot of ways because it, it sets me free from your sins. But at the same time, if I love you as a brother or sister, then, then I have some responsibility for your sins in the same way that prophets had responsibility when God would tell them that, that it's your job to go and tell this people their sin. And if you fail to do it, then the sin lands on you as well. And I think as brothers and sisters in Christ, I think we have that same responsibility. We need not be fault finders. But when we see sin and when we see problems, we need to confront those things as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have an obligation because we have love for that other person. We want them to be all that they can be, and we don't want them to die in their sins, as it were. And so it's important for us to remember those things. And God makes this wonderful promise of the this new covenant is not going to be like the covenant the covenant that I made with their fathers in previous days. It's, I'm going to write my law on their hearts individually. And so there's going to be this new way of doing things and, and how they could possibly have parsed that outside the, the the giving of the Holy Spirit. I'm really not sure. And, and he says that, that in the future, it'll not be that one shall teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, "Know the Lord, for they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." Declares the Lord. You can remember there's a cynicism that we see in different places, including in the Gospels, of the um, the leaders of the people in Jerusalem. Even at that time, are cynical about the way the the people respond. They, you know, they don't know anything. They're ignorant, and so there's there's this. This idea that goes through everything that that says is that – and there's still a belief that kind of exists like this, and that is that the highest thing you can um, devote yourself to is the study of the law. And there's so tension in uh, Judaism and in the land particularly, actually, over that idea because you get people who have now – The Chabad movement, for instance, and others like that who have decided that they're going to devote themselves to the study of the law, which means they don't have to make a living. They don't have to serve in uh, the military or any of that kind of stuff. So you've got to provide for them some way. So you've got a class of people who are not providing anything for the common good, you know, in a material way, um, who are, in fact, just doing nothing except devoting themselves to the study of the law, which sounds noble, but at the same time, that's really not what God... Set us up to do, um, and also it, if we take seriously the promise here that that no longer will each teach his neighbor and his brother, it, it does come down to that. And the problem is, is that that a chunk of the money that people then make has to be given to these who are studying the law because it's considered such a noble thing and such a holy and righteous thing they're becoming sadiqs, and to the ex- which is a righteous man to the extent that you invest in that then you also gain credit for their work so it's it's an interesting sort of a thing but but we've been given the holy spirit and that's the way we understand that in christianity doesn't mean there's no room for paid clergy and things like that people who devote themselves to the word of god and to the shepherding of the people that that doesn't mean there's no use for that but but i wonder sometimes about what we've made of it <clears throat> so anyway but then we come from there to this whole idea of who is jesus and and how much do we believe in him? you know and I've told you that John is a, a a journey in belief and to belief because there's belief in the beginning, certainly there's right from the start um, there is belief that the disciples believe this, they believe that, but then everybody has to keep coming up, coming up, coming up and so here in in the gospel lesson today we're in the uh, the death of Lazarus is in view here and so he comes and Martha, goes to get Mary and we're not told that that Jesus asked for, her, but that's exactly what Martha tells her. the teacher's here and he's calling for you and so Mary went and I, and maybe Martha thought well he, he's you know she's special to him in a way that I'm not. and so um, Mar- Mary goes to him and she says exactly what Martha says when she arrives there with Jesus and that is um, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a great statement of faith, but there's also this painful edge to it because they had called for him and Jesus determined to wait until he went to them even because he loved them is exactly what it says. He decided to wait and initially when you read that if you don't know this story you think well that's very odd if somebody called and told you that their brother was sick and they did it obviously not so you'd come and visit but because they believed you could do something then it seems the opposite of loving then to delay going to them. And so she When she says this, she's essentially saying two things. One, I believe you could have done something to prevent his death. And two is, we did call for you. He's dead, partially at least, because you didn't come when we called for you. And so Jesus was, he sees her weeping, and he sees the other mourners there weeping, and he's deeply moved, is the word that it says, in his spirit, and greatly troubled. And and what it, I mean, it, it would have looked it would have had a physical manifestation, I guess is the way to say it. It's the, the language that's used here, and it's used twice in this passage, has to do with, with like a horse snorting um, in anger. And so what's Jesus angry about? He's not angry at their weeping and their mourning. He's angry about death. He's angry at Satan and the power of death here. And they, he says, where have you laid him? And they said, come and see. And he wept there. He's weeping because of the impact that death has on us, on those who don't see beyond the veil and into eternity. And so the Jews interpret that as, see how he loved him. And it's true, he did. He loved uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And so that is absolutely true, but that's not the entire thing. And then there's this other twist in there. They believe, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man in John 9 also have kept this man from dying? So Jesus, everybody believes. There's a lot of belief here, but the belief ended with Lazarus's death, and, and it's a little bit after that, And because death, they believed that the spirit of a man would hang around for some period of time, three days um, specifically, and then after that, it gave up on the resuscitation of the body, and so it left, and now, you know, sort of like Wizard of Oz, he's no longer merely dead, he's really most sincerely dead after that period of time. And so Jesus, he's, again, he's deeply moved, comes, and there's a cave there and a stone laid against it, and he tells him to take away the stone. And Martha, the other sister, says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. The King James just makes it really simple. Lord, he stinketh, because the death has happened, and decay is now setting in. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? Yes, you did. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes and he prays to the Father, I know that you have heard me. And I know that, but I'm saying that so that they'll believe that you sent me. He's giving glory to the Father in advance for the miracle that's going to happen. He's not doing it without thanking him in advance so that they'll know the connection between the two of them. It's sort of like Moses striking the rock versus Moses speaking to the rock. And so Jesus prays in advance so they'll know that there's this connection between him and the Father, that he's not doing things just on his own. And so when he had said these things, though, he cried out with a loud voice. And I mean, you think about it in situation, right? So this, this they've opened this thing very reluctantly. They've opened the door to this cave because they they he's completely dead, decaying, and, and smelly at this point. And so Jesus cries out, it says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I mean, everybody there is, is probably thinking, has he lost his mind? And then the man who died came out, his hand and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Think about the resurrection. They find the burial cloths there. But here, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Everybody believes until the moment that he cries out. They don't believe that he has any power over death, and so he proves here that he has this great power over death, which would be a frightening thing to see. It would have been really frightening to hear him scream like that, with crying out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. You know, a lot of people have made the point that, that unless he uses the, the name Lazarus, it's potential that Everybody around there who was dead could have come out. And so in this case, he's calling Lazarus out. And so they, because of their faithfulness and belief in him to this point, get to see the greatest miracle prior to the resurrection. And Paul keeps on talking about this whole idea in some ways of resurrection and new covenant himself because he's explaining to the Romans that, you know, here's the thing. Here's the way to think about yourself, the church, Christianity, and its relationship with Judaism. And he assures them that God's covenants are irrevocable and permanent and eternal, and therefore the Jews will be brought back in to this covenant because God made the covenant with them, and so he is assuring the people that um, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And then he compares it the other way around, just as you were once disobedient, now you've received mercy, so they're disobedient so that they can show mercy because everything has to be built on that one foundation, which is mercy. You can't get in still thinking it's about works. You have to see your own disobedience in order to know that what you receive, you receive by mercy. Just like the people of Israel did in Jeremiah's time, the the people who were, and the people in Egypt, uh, the Jews in Egypt, they knew that it was the mercy of God that brought them and gave them that land. The Jews of Jeremiah's time, when they come back, know that it's God's mercy that they've come back because they've had 70 years to stew in their own juices and recognize their own disobedience of their fathers. And so they're pleading back to the forefathers with whom God made the covenant. But but they've got to return to righteousness. And that's the reason Ezekiel has kept the synagogue, or started the synagogue movement there to make sure the people were instructed in that time while they were in Babylon. And (laughs) Paul sums it all up by saying, God has consigned us all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then this is the thing that that to me is always the most important thing to remember whenever we're we're reading the Bible, whenever we're studying about God, And, and that is our theology, the knowledge of God, always needs to lead to doxology, the praise of God, or we did it wrong. If we can know more and more about God and not praise Him more and more, then we misunderstood something along the way because all of it should lead to the praise of God. So even here where Paul's in pain because the disobedience and the sort of rejection of his own people, the reject, their rejection of the Messiah and therefore their um, failure to enter into the rest that God was giving and failure to enter into this new covenant through the blood of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he, he, it's painful to Paul. He's not pleased about that. No matter what they do to him, he, they're still his people. They're still his family. And so he comes to the end of that. After he makes this statement, he is consigned to all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Paul gets it right. He's done 11 and a half chapters or 11 and three quarters chapters of heavy duty theology. For the Romans and and then, but that leads him to this one thing. Oh, the depth and the riches and and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And if you want to sort of see more of that, go look at Psalm 139, which is David's psalm. So he finishes that and he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen, and I can't do better than that.